everybody. Welcome to the May 10th, 2021 Community Development Board meeting for the City of Medford. My name is Andre LaRue, the Chairman of the Community Development Board. I call the meeting to order. Uh, pursuant to Governor, Governor Baker's March 12th, 2020 order suspending certain provisions of the Open Meeting Law, General Law Chapter 30A, Section 18, and the Governor's March 15th, 2020 order imposing strict limitation on the number of people that may gather in one place, this hearing of the Medford Community Development Board will be conducted via remote participation to the greatest extent possible. Specific information in the general guidelines for remote participation by members of the public and or parties with a right and or requirement to attend this meeting can be found on the City of Medford website at www.medfordma.org. For this meeting, members of the public who wish to listen or watch the meeting may do so by accessing the meeting link contained herein. No in-person attendance of members of the public will be permitted but every effort will be made to ensure that the public can adequately access the proceedings in real time via technological means. In the event that we are unable to do so, despite best efforts, we'll post on the City of Medford or Medford Community Media website an audio or video recording, transcript, or other comprehensive record of proceedings as soon as possible after the meeting. Uh, and just a reminder to everyone to participate during the meeting outside of the Zoom platform, if you're watching this. Um, questions and comments may be mailed to OCD at medford-ma.gov or submitted via phone to 781-393-2480. That's 781-393-2480. All votes will be roll call votes and please uh, introduce yourselves uh, before you speak. Tonight's meeting will be broadcast live on channel 22 Comcast and channel 43 Verizon and stream live on the Medford Community Media website. Let's do a roll call attendance to start the meeting. Uh, Katie McHugh. I'm here. Kles Andreasen. Here. Deanna Peabody. Here. David Blumberg. Hey, Andre, I'm here. Jackie Furtado. Here. Uh, and again, Andre Lou is here. That's me. Um, so we also have uh, city staff here today, uh, the Director of Community Development, uh, Alicia Hunt, uh, Community Development Planner, Annie Streetman, and uh, do we have some other folks here, Ali and Danielle. Do you wanna just introduce yourselves real quick? Go ahead, Danielle. Sure. Uh, my name is Danielle Evans, and I am the Community Preservation Coordinator as well as a Housing Planner and have been um, managing the uh, housing production planning process that is being um, completed by our consultant, Jen Goldson of JM Goldson. Great. Thank you. And Ali, do you want to just introduce yourself too? Sure. Hi there. Um, I'm a graduate intern with the Office of Community Development. Thank you, everybody. Um, first item on the agenda is approval of meeting, uh, minutes of the meeting for uh, April 15th, 2021. Any questions, comments, revisions? I have one tiny clerical revision. I apologize for not catching it till after you guys got it. Um, but my title is no longer acting community development director. Um, it's just 
right, thank we'll you. make sure we catch that on the template going forward. Congratulations. Uh, any other revisions, questions? If not, is there a motion on the floor? Andres, David. David. Uh, I'd like to make a motion to approve the minutes um, subject to correcting Alicia's uh, title. Thank you. Is there a second to the motion? I'll this is second. Katie. I'll second the motion. Thanks, Katie. Uh, roll call. Katie McHugh. Aye. Klaus Andresen. Aye. Deanna Peabody. Aye. David Blumberg. Aye. Jackie Furtado. Aye. And I'm an I as well. Thank you very much. The minutes are approved unanimously. Next item on the agenda, we have a couple of uh, approval not required plans for review, A&R plans. And the first one we have is 20 Powderhouse Road Extension. Is there uh, someone representing the proponent here who can just introduce the, uh, the A&R plan? Hi, uh, Cliff Rober with Rober Survey. Um, basically, we're taking a, an approximately a 30,000 square foot lot located at 20 Powderhouse Road and subdividing it into two lots. Um, we have the required frontage, we have the required lot width and the lot depth. Um, and I, I think if there's any questions you have pertaining to the plan, I'd be more than happy to show it. And as has been just put up here, uh, mm -hmm. it is proposed that the second house will actually go behind the first house. In, in the general area, probably more, a lot more between the, you know, behind the pool house, not so far over to the side, but in that general area. Okay. Right. And uh, I know Paul Moki has uh, looked at this as well, reviewed it. Um, and uh, this uh, zone requires 35 feet of frontage and 7,000 square foot lot area. Um, and that has both been reviewed and ascertained by the, the building commissioner Moki that it does meet the requirements. Any questions or, or comments from the board members? Okay. Andre, this is David. Yes, David. Could I hear about the frontage? I, maybe I'm... I just don't understand it so well. Okay, so the, the frontage, the existing house lot has 63 feet of 63.08 feet of frontage. The proposed house lot will have 50.91 feet of frontage. So if you're looking at the plan, you'll see a 38.79, but there's an additional distance along the curve of 12.12. You add those two together, you're, you're at 50.91. As the chair said, 35 foot is the minimum frontage. Both lots adhere to that. David, do you want to see it up on the screen one more time? Thanks, Annie. 
Okay. Okay. I, thank you. Uh, whoever's moving their hand around there. Is that the front? That's, okay. Yeah. That's, that's, okay. that's Annie Streetman. I'm sorry. I was misunderstanding your jigsaw puzzle. Uh, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. And so the, un, and my understanding from what you said is that the, the home that is to be built is going to be in the larger portion of the lot that's behind, right? Yes, sir. All right. And I know that uh, the building commissioner, Moki, is going back and forth a little bit to, uh, to determine whether that lot will be buildable, but our charge here is only with looking at frontage and access. Um, these plans do uh, meet the minimum requirements. I did have a conversation with Paul at the building department. Um, and as you said, frontage area and everything, it, it does comply. Uh, there, there may be other questions that pop up pertaining to the, um, access and all that, which uh, he was going to be doing some verification on that. But as you indicated, that doesn't have to do with this board. Although prior to being able to build, we will have to make sure it complies with the other requirements by the building department. Mm -hmm. uh, Alicia? So I just sort of wanted to comment on this. It's I don't see questions coming in from the board members. Um, so, Mr. Rober, it looks like uh, your expectation is that there'll be a very long driveway that would run next to the other house and this pool, and then the, the goal is to build a house in the back? That is correct. Well, I will just say that I am not a fan of that. We don't have a lot of that in Medford. I'm not a fan of all those trees that would need to come down to build a house. But I also don't see that under zoning and the rules of ANR that we have any place to do anything but to agree on this lot subdivision um, from what we've seen of the how an ANR works and our regulations. I'm not aware of anything we would then object to on this. If any other if any of the board members have concerns. I I, Alicia, I was just looking at this plan and I have a very similar concern. Um, it seems to me that the project is by right, but this is a textbook example of the parasitic development that's happening in Medford right now. And it's gonna take down a whole forest that I imagine generations of children have played in. So I don't like it, but here we are. Yes, Mr. Rober. I, I did want to point out that these lots are significantly larger than the required size of lots in this zone. I mean, uh, as we said, we uh, having a 13,000 and a 16,000. And uh, if you look it up, I, it should be a 7,000 square foot minimum. So these are dramatically larger than the required lot size. Um, if percent per se, uh, the owner just wanted to chop off the pool, which they do not want to do. I mean, it would not be any different than any other subdivision we had. Yeah, I, as, uh, as mentioned, we, we don't have jurisdiction over anything but the, the, the frontage, just reviewing that uh, the ANR plan can go forward, which as 
ANR stands for approval not required, there's uh, not much discretion um, in the process. So I think that the just wanted to register some uh, dissatisfaction with uh, the lot layout there. Um, it's not the it's not the best. Um, is there a motion on the floor to approve the ANR? This is Katie. I'll make a motion to approve the ANR. Thank you, Katie. Is there a second? This is Jackie. Oh. I, I second. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, roll call vote. Katie McHugh. Aye. Les Andreessen. Dane. Deanna Peabody. Aye. David Blumberg. Aye. Uh, Jackie Furtado. Aye. And I'm an aye as well. The ANR is approved by the Community Development Board. I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Rober. Next item on the agenda is a, another approval not required uh, plan for 26 Fells Avenue Terrace. And this uh, is a single family two zone that also requires 35 feet of frontage and a, uh, only a, a 5,000 square foot lot area. So if there's a proponent here, Attorney Desmond, I think. Yes, good evening, Chairman LaRue, uh, board members. So this is a, a three parcel uh, subdivision. Essentially, um, the, my clients, the McInneses own lot 13 and 14, which as you can see from the lot land court plan are going to be uh, lots 15 and uh, 16. Um, we're taking a corner piece from the Haggerty property uh, so as to be able to, to um, cure what was a deficiency on lot 16 of approximately 462 square feet. Uh, the Haggerty parcel, uh, which is lot B, was almost 6,000 square feet in a, in a uh, SF2 zone where a 5,000 lot is required. This parcel also does somewhat improve deficiencies with lot B in that it um, takes away, if you look at lot B, the, the lot line comes right at the corner of the house. So, um, Parcel 15 is now going to give the Haggerty parcel uh, 86 square feet, which will increase the width of the lot and also bring it more into compliance with what would be a side yard setback. Uh, we're not impacting any of the other uh, boundaries on this, and, and lot 16 will then become a 5,000 square foot lot uh, where uh, my client is hoping her daughter can build her home. They've had that piece of property for a while. Um, and they'd like to be able to give it to her and let her put a single family on. So, sorry, I, so what B. It's the one on the left. Yeah, is, is, is adding the small triangle at the bottom right of that lot. Correct. But subtracting the one at the top right. Correct. And that, that one at the top right is going to lot 15. Correct. And where is, so then where is the previous line between 15 and 16? Um, the previous line, if I can share my screen, which is always such a treat. Um, let's see if I can. Is it possible to share? 
Yeah, Annie, I think is working on Kathy, that. Kathy, you should be able to share now. Okay. Share screen. Um, let me get out of that one. So, so this is the prior um, plan as it existed. And you'll see with the proposed house, and that's probably not what the dimensions of it are going to be um, at this point. But in any event, the line um, ran here, leaving with 4,538 square feet on what was lot 14. That's been changed because of the land court designations. And you'll also see here that on a lot, what is lot B, the Haggerty property, there was an encroachment. Um, so that will rid the property of an encroachment um, and bring that closer to what's required uh, for width on the property because it's also deficient. So it will increase that. Um, and then that small triangle in the back, the 500 square feet, 557 square feet will then become a part of of this lot 13, which is now lot, I think, 15 under the under the land court plan. I have a question, Andre. Yes, Katie. I think you just orient us to which, where on Felsav Terrace this is. Like, is this at the cul-de-sac right here? It, it is. Okay. It is. Can you show us the, um, the view I was actually just looking at the Google Street View. Yeah, I think it does help a little bit to understand. Yeah. Do you want me to? I don't. That? I don't have that. Yeah. Yeah, Alicia, if you want to share your you screen, to share that. that? Go ahead. So, Kathy, just to be clear, the one on the left here. That's the one that is lot B. And what you're Correct. saying is that right now the property line actually comes like this. Actually, I think it's somewhere closer to right. Um, right. So like the right. It, right. It comes against the house and then kind of runs at an angle through the driveway piece. So and that will be straightened out. Technically, their driveway is on this person's property. Correct. Legally. Correct. And so this will bring the property line to more closely follow this. Right. Correct. And then this space here is where the new property will be with the new house. Correct. And this deck is coming off. And that's the... That's going to be... They both own this. So this is correct. family. So when you say correct. the deck is coming off there, they're right. all... They're not selling it to a developer. And no. I assume they're going to need to do something because this looks like it's a hill. They are going to have to, you know, do some chipping on ledge for sure. Nothing to make, make people busy, but I did want to sort of make sure we all saw this is the new property then. Correct. And actually, you know, part of the reason why um, it, it's short, the, the 500 the square feet here is when they took this, they rounded that corner. Um, and so they lost some square footage on that property. So we just kind of, it's only short by 462 square feet um, as a lot itself. But it will cure some violations on lot B that exist. Um, lot B is a large lot um, and it, it's, it's space that, that she's agreed to, to um, convey to my client so that everybody has 5,000 square feet. 
And again, building commissioner has uh, reviewed this and ascertained that it meets frontage and footage requirements. Any questions or comments from board members? Is there a motion to approve the A&R for 26 Fells Avenue Terrace? I'll make a motion to approve it. Thanks, Gus. Is there a second? Andre, I'll second. Thank you, David. Uh, roll call vote. Katie McHugh? Aye. Klaus Andreasen? Aye. Deanna Peabody? Aye. David Blumberg? Aye. Uh, Jackie Furtado? Aye. And I'm an I as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Attorney. Good night, folks. Thank you. You too. Take okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. Now we'll move on to the, the main agenda item for tonight, which is review uh, and discussion of the draft housing production plan. Uh, we'll have a presentation from Jen Goldson from JM Goldson, and then we can have a, uh, a discussion. Uh, we may vote to endorse the, the plan or uh, possibly we could also hold off on, on doing that until after it comes back from the city council. The one question, uh, one challenge is that if we send it off and then the city council makes any changes to it, we would, it would have to come back to us. We'd have to approve it again. Uh, anyway, so we may want to just discuss it tonight and then wait for it to come back from the city council. Um, so, but we can talk about that more uh, a little bit later. Uh, Jen, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here tonight. Um, it was nice to see you reviewing those A&Rs. It brought me back to my planning uh, department days back in Brookline. Um, so I do have a short presentation. Some of you may have seen the longer version of this at the city council back in early February. Um, I've just pared it down a bit because I think that you've probably gotten the sense of what this plan is. And, and I know you, you have a copy of it, so I'm not going to go too, too into the weeds on it. But I also have a copy of the plan on my screen. So if we do want to pull anything up and kind of dive into details, I'm, I'm happy to do that as well. Um, so thanks, Annie, for getting this up here. I'm just going to share my screen now, and um, hopefully you can all see that. Just give me a thumbs up if if that's coming through for everybody. Okay, yeah. great. Good. So um, I'm Jen Goldson. I'm a planning consultant. I do uh, a lot of work around the state with uh, local housing needs analysis and housing production plans and working with housing trusts. We also do uh, master planning and community preservation planning. <clears throat> and uh, and we worked very closely on this project with the working group with which Andre was was uh, was part of, and we just listed uh, a few of the other members here, um, as well as the support staff uh, from the city. And so um, now I'm not doing this to shame anybody. I just want an honest accounting of um, of who's actually looked at the plan. So I'm going to try to actually see you all on my screen. It's harder when I share. So just give me a second. Okay. If you could give me a thumbs up, if you think that you've looked at the plan very thoroughly, like practically read every single word. Okay. A couple of people. No, that's fair. And again, I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm just trying to get a sense. Um, if you've been able to at least kind of skim it and get the gist of it and see the important parts, why don't you give me a thumbs up? Okay. 
All right, good. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you never saw such a plan, uh, how about a thumbs up for that? Hopefully there's no one on here. Okay, good. So you'll you'll know from at least skimming it then that um, that it's a pretty you know thorough document, I would say. And that's um, it's maybe a little more thorough than the baseline that the state would require, but the state really does expect a certain level of robustness in these plans. And so our plans tend to be you know 80, 90 pages, something like that um, before appendices. So it is a it's kind of a hefty plan, but um, I don't anticipate that everyone's going to read the whole thing. And so the first chapter, the first really couple chapters are really where I would spend my time. Um, the introduction chapter really is can function as an executive summary. And then the second chapter goes into the goals and strategies. And that's really where the kind of the heart of policy will be. Um, so when you get a chance to, you know, really dive in more, if you haven't already, I would read those first two chapters. The rest of it is important, but it's summarized in the intro. Um, but the rest of it is very detailed. It's the comprehensive needs assessment, which you'll see has a lot of data, a lot of charts and graphs and analyses. And then there's the development constraints analysis, which includes environmental constraints infrastructure, and we look at your capacity as well to, to implement the plan, um, As I'm sorry, and regulatory. And then the next chapter is implementation capacity. Um, in chapter two is where we have the five-year goals and strategies. And again, that's the heart of the policy piece. And then in that same chapter is also an action plan, which is just a one-pager. And that's going to be really handy for you to look at. It's kind of a, if you just want the Cliff Notes version or even less, it's really just an outline of all the strategies in there um, and kind of who's responsible. You'll see that your board is responsible for a lot of them, um, uh, in, in especially the regulatory ones. So we can pull that up if you want to take a closer look at that tonight or talk through any of our assumptions there about sequencing and things. But just to give you some of the basics, um, I think you're probably pretty familiar with Chapter 40B, especially in, in Medford with all the activity that's gone on and your role on the Community Development Board. But just as a general background, um, it's been around a long time. It was created in 69, and it's really trying to set up um, a kind of a fair share of housing across the across the state where every community, uh, the state has a goal that every community has at least 10% of its year-round housing stock is affordable. And we can get into what that means and what the definition is, but that's kind of the bottom line. Um, and then there's also this general land area minimum, which is 1.5%, which is a sort of a very difficult uh, threshold to make. And only one community that I'm aware of has been able to, to show that they meet that. Most of the most of the communities are going after that 10% affordable housing stock rather than the 1.5%. And the housing production plan really focuses more on where are you in regards to that 10% goal that the state has and what can you do to produce more housing both to get to that 10 percent eventually um and also uh to meet your local housing needs because even though communities can get to their 10 percent goal of year-round housing stock is affordable in every community i've worked with their their local need is greater and then you throw the regional need into it, it's even greater. So um, 10%, I would say, is kind of a minimum threshold for the communities that we work with. And so what happens if you don't have that 10% of your year-round housing stock is affordable? So developers can seek comprehensive permit under Chapter 40B, and that means they can request to waive your zoning and other local regulations so that they can build 
uh, more dense housing, including affordable housing. And I know I'm going over this very fast. So if anybody has questions or you think I'm you know, speaking in tongues, just raise your hand. I'm happy to back up and, and um, explain a little bit more carefully. Um, and so just so you know, this, the city can, uh, over, uh, can deny or impose conditions on 40Bs, but they're often overturned anyway. So there's very limited authority if you don't have your 10%. Um, of your year-round housing stock. And I'm going to tell you in a minute what Medford's is, but um, but first let me just explain something very important about the housing production plan. There's two terms that people get confused all the time. So if you get them confused, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'll just, I'm kind of the police about this, so I'll keep correcting people. But there's two terms. There's approval and there's certification, and they're totally different things. And they're very important to know. So approval means that you have a housing production plan that's been both approved by your, in this case, your community development board and your city council. And so what you want to do is vote eventually to approve that plan locally. Once that's approved, you can submit it to the state, to the Department of Housing and Community Development. And then the state looks at it, makes sure it meets all of their requirements, and they then approve it at the state level. They send you back a letter saying you now have an approved plan. And people say, you know, well, what does that get me? And the truth is it doesn't really get you much of anything except the ability to get certified, uh, hopefully, and, and attain safe harbor if you meet certain production goals. So the first step is getting approval locally and then at the state. And so that's the first word is an approved plan. The second word is certification. And so the way you get certified is you need to have an approved plan first. Then if the city approves or produces is the technical term, meaning units count on the subsidized housing inventory, that's what we mean by produce. We don't actually mean getting built necessarily. We mean how many units, you know, they look at the production of how many units count on the subsidized housing inventory. And so there's two numbers here to know about. If the city produces 120 units that count on the subsidized housing inventory, then you can ask the state to certify your plan, but only after that number is produced and put on your SHI. Um, if, the, if the state agrees that you did indeed produce that many units in one calendar year and they meet the requirements of uh, 40B and they count on the SHI, then the state will give you a letter back saying, okay, now we've certified your plan and you are now in safe harbor. And that means that your zoning board of appeals, if they get another comprehensive permit before them, they can deny it or they can impose conditions that they otherwise wouldn't be able to impose. And those um, will be upheld by the housing appeals committee. People call it hack. There's another number on this slide. It's in the second, um, right after the 120 SHI homes, it's 240. And the reason I put that in, it's just double, you'll notice. Um, but that's the number you would need to reach to produce in a calendar year in order to get a two-year certification. The 120 units is for one-year certification. And so let me just pause here. I know I went over a ton of information very quickly, kind of assuming a lot of you know this, you know, to some extent already. But let me just pause and just ask, is this, does this make sense? And I'm happy to, to answer questions at this point before I go on. I think it's very clear, Jen, but uh, I encourage any board member to just uh, jump in because I can't see everybody with the screen being shared. 
Okay. And I'm happy to go back to this too, as I go on and we continue to talk about this, I'm happy to go back to this. Um, but this is one of the, you know, the really important things for you to know about. This is mostly why communities want to have an approved housing production plan is so they can reach safe harbor and uh, enter certification of the plan, giving them that safe harbor. Um, okay, so here's where we think you're at now, although there's been a few um, a few uh, developments and units that may count soon on the SHI, but these are the, and Danielle, you can feel free to uh, elaborate. I did get your email earlier about this, um, but this is what the official SHI is now for Medford. So we have 7.2%. And that's 1,726 units that are listed on the SHI. So there's 670 more needed to reach that 10% goal. Um, you have a few units that are, or proposals that are um, being proposed or, or under construction. And if all of that was approved, you would go beyond that 10%. You'd get up to 11%. Um, we do have more details on this if you want to sort of go through the details of that, but that's the bottom line. You're not there yet. You have a bunch of proposals that are active, so you could be over that 10% soon um, with the current proposals and with things that are currently under construction and will count at some point soon. But what I want to just point out, and this is something that you you may you may already know this, but I think it's worth it's worth um, reinforcing. The fact that you have these 1,726 units does not really mean that you have 7.2% of your year-round housing stock as affordable housing. It means that you have 7.2% that counts on the SHI. And does anybody know why I'm making that distinction? And can you tell us what SHI is again? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should have backed up with that. So I, I... Pop into jargon really quick, but the SHI is the subsidized housing inventory, which is basically just the list that the state keeps of all the units that count towards that 10% goal. So um, I have like a minor question that sort of yeah. I should have asked about 30 seconds or a minute ago, but yeah, it's all right. the, the ultimate goal of the of this plan is to uh, how do I say this? Is to um, is to not allow forty B projects or to discourage them in lieu of projects that are sort of by right under the city's guidance. Not necessarily. Some may some people may characterize it that way, but I wouldn't. I would characterize it as it gives the city more control as to what it approves and what it doesn't approve. And it gives you more uh, ability to really shape those, uh, the designs, as well as the type of households that are being served, how many affordable units you get out of developments, and how, uh, what level of affordability they are reaching and how well they're serving your local housing needs. And I could explain all of those points, but that, but generally it gives you more control. So I'll give you one example. One example is that the 40 Bs you get, they have a minimum 25% of the total units must be affordable to households that are lower moderate income. But that income cap is actually kind of high considering Medford's incomes. And so you really need in your city, and this is what 
the plan goes into, you need a deeper level of affordability to really reach your needs. And so what we heard when we did focus groups and community engagement and the survey and whatnot, which some of you, maybe all of you were involved with, what we heard is these comprehensive permit projects say they're producing all this housing, but we can't afford them and they're not really meeting our local needs. And so by having more control um, you actually can meet your local needs better. That's what I would argue. I mean, now it means you would need to take initiative to do that. Um, but that's what I would argue the real benefit is. Jen, this is um, Jackie Furtado. I, mm -hmm. You had asked a question uh, previously about the 7.2%, and I thought you were going with exactly where you just followed up at, and it's the affordability index. Um, as To my recollection, um, the affordability index is not per medium, it's the income, it's the median income of the area. So for instance, if there's a 40B that's coming along, I don't know, um, Mystic Valley Parkway, you're competing with Coles and all the commercial areas, you're comp competing with all the income. So how does a family fit in that? So I just, I, I know the answer, but I kind of have, um, I have a leg up on that being with the Executive Office of Health and Economic Development. Um, but I just wanted to elaborate on that so that the rest of the board members can understand if they don't or. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's exactly the point I was starting to get at is um, your uh, need for affordable housing is at a deeper level than what, you know, when you look at the whole region and the area median income, your median income is actually even lower than that. And so that means that you have more households, more families in your community that need even deeper affordability than what these 40Bs are providing. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that the 40B, the basic requirement is to only provide 20% of those units as affordable, even though for rental development, all of those units count toward that SHI, the subsidized housing unit. So that means in a lot of these developments, 75% of the units are luxury market rate units they still count towards your 10%, which some people would say, that's great, we'll get to 10% faster. But the downside is you're not actually reaching your local need for affordable units because a lot of them are actually luxury market rate units. And right. because even the affordable ones aren't affordable to many households in Medford. Right. And Jen, I would just to, this is Andre, just to jump in. Um, I, you know, I would say that having a housing production plan helps us understand where we are so that we can be more strategic about negotiating with the uh, housing developers and what they're proposing so that we could get either deeper affordability or more affordability. Um, and in some ways it can, you know, this doesn't have to be a tool to, to stop 40Bs. It's in some ways, it's a, it's a way of, of kind of showing the community the benefits of being able to do some 40Bs if they're in line with what we're, um, you know, our housing production plan. Okay, guys, one, one other question. What, um, which units qualify for this? Uh, what, what types of units? Yeah, so a lot of these are public housing units um, and others are from, you know, other initiatives that the town or the city's taken or private development. And so if you can see this map and this is provided in a, you know, you can kind of zoom in if you, if you, it's in the plan. Um, so I don't know how well you can read it on my screen, but if you look um, here, all the yellow um, 
circles are your existing SHI units and where they are. So you can see, you know, some, like I think one of these two, if you can see my cursor here is the salt and stall building that the housing authority owns. And then there's, I think maybe this is Walkling Court. Um, and I'm not sure the names of all of these other dots, but essentially these are the subsidized housing units that you have are in the developments that are on these properties kind of scattered throughout the community. And then the, um, the purple and the green and the orange dots are things that don't count yet, but will eventually, or are being proposed. And if they're approved would count. Is that, I know I'm not being super specific. I'm happy to actually the list of everything that counts on the SHI, we usually include that as an appendix in the plan. So in a minute I can flip my screen and go to the actual draft plan and look at the list. Is it generally like a certain number of units in a, in a project and, and up or? It, it uh, might be helpful, Jen. One of the things that people like I know, so I know if you're working in the housing world, you know, but if you're not, you may not realize that to be on the SHI, they also have to be deed restricted. So it's yeah. not necessarily that the, the properties themselves are affordable, like there's affordable for common parlance and there's affordable, the word deed restricted affordable. And that's, um, so these are all deed restricted. And if you have a certain number of affordable unit, a certain percentage of the building is deed restricted affordable, you get to count the whole building on your SHI. And that was part of what we were getting at with the luxury units being on the SHI. So we could pull apart of the ones that are already on the SHI. How many of those are actually deed restricted units and how many are bonus units, but they don't, they're not publicly displayed that way. Like we would literally have to go to that list and do a hand count to figure that out. Does that help at all? Would yeah. And, and, and I would just, I would just add to that, that, um, the definition for affordability to get on, to have a home listed on the SHI, not only um, deed restricted, but it's at 80% of area median income it has to be at least that affordable by um, the federal housing and urban development department standards. That's um, something, it's a question of whether, you know, we ask or negotiate as a city for more affordability than that, but that's at a minimum. Now for 40Bs, has been mentioned a couple of times, the entire project, all of the units get counted on the SHI, the subsidized housing inventory, even the ones that are not subsidized and deed restricted affordable. That's just a peculiarity of 40B. If you're talking about other projects that may have 10%, 15%, some other kind of affordability, like percentage to them, it's only those affordable units that will get listed. So, you know, the city of Medford, we approved a couple of years ago, an inclusionary zoning ordinance. And so for those projects, only those that are affordable on the inclusionary zoning ordinance. So for example, if like 15% of a project, you know, is required to have uh, affordability, that would be the number that would go on the subsidized housing inventory for the state's counting purposes. Yeah, thank you, Andre. That's that's great. Um, does anybody have any other questions before I move on? And does that help to clarify things a little bit more? 
Okay. Keep asking questions. I think it'll become clear if we continue this as a dialogue. Um, so let me move on. And I think I'm kind of I'm kind of peeling away the layers or adding layers. I don't know what I'm doing, but as I go through each slide, it may become more and more clear. Um, and so here are Andre just mentioned the income limits, the 80%. So here's what it is now. I actually updated this when I presented in February to the council. We had FY20 numbers up, and now I have access to FY21 numbers. And so I I updated this this morning. Um, and so you can see the numbers in white are the incomes by household size. That would be the threshold for 80% of the area median income. And that's what, so let's say you have a three bedroom unit in a 40B, and that could be appropriate for a household of four people. Well, they could make an income of 101,000 up to 101,000. And that would be counted as 80% AMI, an affordable unit. And then if you have a single person living alone um, and they make 70,750 or less, that could be also counted as an, you know someone in a, and it's a deed restricted unit, et cetera, the way Alicia said, but this is the income cap. Um, so for a single person, 70,750, Two people living together, 80850 that's the income cap. But if you look at Medford's needs, um, we and we go through this in a lot of detail in the plan, um, I would argue that you really need more units that are more deeply affordable. And what I mean by that is at 50% or less of the area median income. And so I gave you those figures as well, so you can see the difference. So if you're a household of four people, and you make 67100 or less, then you would meet that 50% of the area median income or below. And then again, changes by household size. So if you're a single person living alone, you make 47000 or less, that could, you could then be eligible for low or moderate income housing. Is this making sense? And just in terms of the income caps, and I know I'm throwing around some jargon with AMI and area median income. <clears throat> Does anybody have any questions on this part yet? Okay. And again, I'm, ha I'm happy to go back to these as we kind of talk more and more about this stuff. You may want to go back to some of these. <clears throat> so I mentioned before, even when you get to 10%, and this is for every community I've worked in, um, there's still a great local need for homes that are affordable. So about 42% of all of Medford's households could potentially qualify for affordable housing, meeting, having lower moderate incomes, that 80% AMI. Now, the reason I say potentially is because this statistic is only looking at incomes. Um, in order to qualify for affordable housing, um, they all, the programs also look at your assets. But this is really just looking at income. And so about 42% of your households have estimated incomes that are low or moderate incomes. That's over 9,000 households. Um, and then uh, if you look at all of those households, those 9,000 households that have 80% AMI or less, um, about 66% spend what I say too much for housing. Um, technically, what I'm saying is they spend more than 30% of their income on housing costs. So that's over 6,000 households in Medford. And we would look at that and argue that 6,000 households need affordable homes, whether they're deed-restricted affordable or not. They need homes that are financially attainable for that household's income so that they don't need to spend 30% or more 
of their uh, income toward housing costs. And that's a big um, indicator of housing need. And so you see, we, we point that number out in the plan. And so when you say you, you know, need to get to that 10%, you know, which is only another, not only, I know it probably sounds like a big number, but another 671 units um, so that you can reach the 2,397, which would be 10% of your stock, you can see that that number of housing units doesn't, you know, that's about a, a third of the low moderate income households just living in your community that are paying too much for housing right now. So I'm going to just pause there. Is this making sense? And if you, you know, if you disagree with this analysis, I'm also happy to to take constructive criticism or if you have any questions on this part. Um, give me a thumbs up if if you generally feel like, yeah, this is kind of what I, I thought too, and it's making sense to me. Okay. All right, great. So when we did the community engagement, we did a number of focus groups. I think we ended up doing nine um, stakeholder focus groups, as well as a couple of um, community forums and a survey. And so we just kind of boiled down some of the things that we heard over and over again from community members through all those different mechanisms of reaching out to the community. And I, I don't think you'll be surprised by any of these, but um, we heard growing concerns about affordability in general in the community and that existing residents are being priced out of the community. Um, we heard loud and clear that the community values diversity and feels a lot of pressures of those changes on the community um, and, and feeling like their diversity is threatened, essentially, that people will be pushed out. Um, there's an older housing stock, which I'm sure you're not surprised by. Um, and so one of the things we heard and also found in our analysis is that there are great rehab needs, um, rehab of existing units, existing buildings for health, safety, energy efficiency, as well as uh, greater accessibility. Um, people want more transparency, more control over development in their neighborhoods. Um, design, accessibility, and integrating new developments into neighborhood contexts better um, was was stated over and over again. And not so much about the density itself. It's more about how, how does this new building, this new project, this new development, how does it fit into my community? Are there amenities for me or does it seem like it's isolated from us? Um, and so it's really, it was really more about integrating. It wasn't so much about we think there are too many people or it's too dense. We heard things are not affordable and we heard things are not designed in the way that, you know, maybe we want them to be. And then we also heard quite a lot about um, needing options for downsizing seniors, including studios, one bedrooms, or even micro apartments. Um, and we also saw in the data that, you know, you do have a lot of smaller households and your household stock really doesn't match um, the needs of smaller households. And so you have a lot, a lot more, I didn't put the statistic in here, but it's in the plan. You have a lot of kind of bigger units of three and four bedroom units, whereas you don't have a lot of studios or one bedroom units. And that's really more of what you need right now. 
Okay, so I'm going to very quickly go through the draft goals. There's just two slides of this, and then we'll go into the strategies, and I'm not going to go into any detail. So if you have any questions about these, let me know. But the goals really mimic a lot of what we heard from the, the community engagement, but also what was reinforced in the housing needs assessment and the analysis that we that we did. And so one, we want to meet production goals. That's what we heard to get to that 10% and over, but we really want to address our local housing needs. And that's not necessarily more important because I think people feel the pressures of 40B developments and want to get some control over that. But they see that there is this great local housing need and they don't want to kind of stop there. They want to um, really meet that local housing need in a strategic way. Um, two, promoting a welcoming, diverse, and intergenerational and inclusive city with an ideal mix of housing choices would offer diverse options to residents with varying needs and preferences. And actually, as I'm looking at this, I realized we wordsmith this a little bit and got away from that word ideal. But um, but the the general effect is let's think of different strategies so that we can be welcoming and we can continue to be diverse and we can support an intergenerational um, community. And so you'll see a number of the um, strategies relate to that a little bit as much as we could think of. Um, number three, foster safe, sustainable, well-designed housing, um, ensuring homes of all types are sensitive, compatible and scale, citing and designed to neighborhood context. Integrate affordable and diverse options throughout the city, not just in certain neighborhoods. And people did recognize the, um, the strategy, the strategic benefits of locating housing near transit and in commercial areas, but they also wanted to see affordable homes at, at appropriate scales scattered throughout the community, throughout all neighborhoods of the community. Preserve the affordability of existing affordable units. So there are a few expiring uses that um, you'll see a strat one strategy is to preserve those units. Um, expand local capacity. And so there's a number of ideas that we'll go through for that to implement housing initiatives. And then promoting transparency and engagement and increasing awareness of fair housing issues. And in particular, we heard a lot about fair housing issues with regard to Section 8 um, tenants, people looking for housing, rental housing in Medford who can't find units that either they won't rent to uh, voucher holder households or they don't meet the um, the physical conditions of a unit that that is you know allowed to be rented to um, households with uh, vouchers or they're just like outright being discriminated against. Um, and so there's a, a number of different, or they can't find anything in the price range that the voucher would support. So there's a number of issues there, but we think a lot of it does uh, maybe, I don't know if a, lo a lot may be too strong, but we think we think at least a portion that we don't have, quant we can't quantify. So I don't want to overstate, but I also don't want to understate, but we think some level of the issue is discrimination and fair housing issues. And so we think that there are some strategies around that that, um, that the city could implement. Okay, so now, so those are the kind of the overall goals. Yeah, Katie, go ahead. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Um, I hopped off for just a second, so I apologize if I missed this. But when we talk about, um, when you use the word units, when we talk about like the affordable housing units, is that always in the context of um, an apartment building or a multifamily home? Or are we ever talking about 
single family dwellings when we talk about units? Yeah, great question. It could be both. Most of the time, um, affordable units are in multifamily um, buildings, sure. but it doesn't, they don't have to be there. You can, you can, it's just the, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's not always, um, can always make the numbers work to create a single family unit that's uh, affordable, but it is possible. And we actually have um, a couple strategy ideas to get at that in terms of, it goes back to that goal of scattering um, affordable units throughout different parts of yeah. the community. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so the the strategies are really in these three overarching categories. They're local initiatives, things that the city can do with its own money, people, and land or other resources. Two, planning policies, um, planning policies and zoning tools. So these things don't necessarily create units, but they lay the groundwork for creating units. They're either studying ways to, to you know, uh, do certain initiatives or they're creating new policies or they're amending zoning so that eventually you could attract the kind of development that you want. But of course, zoning doesn't mandate something uh, happens. It just lays the groundwork for it. So that's number two. Number three is really building capacity, um, education, and coordination. And so these in and of themselves don't necessarily create units or produce units, but they also lay the, the groundwork um, by creating a... Um, the capacity, I don't want to use the same word that I'm trying to define, um, by creating the um, the environment, I guess, where the city can undertake initiatives and make progress. Does that make sense in terms of those three categories? Okay. And so I like to say that these strategies are not, when we create these strategies, we actually don't think a community is going to be able to adopt every single one to exactly the way it's written and, you know, in the precise order that the action plan lays out and that at the end of five years, the whole thing will be done. But at least that's when I create these plans, that's not what I'm expecting. What I'm expecting is that we're providing you a menu of lots of different ideas and you're going to try as many as you can and you're going to prioritize the ones that you feel like are priorities for whatever reason. Maybe it's because you think they'll be easier to implement. Maybe it's because you have the capacity to implement them. Maybe it's because you think they'll have the greatest, you know, bang for the buck or, or impact. Um, but we think that, um, you know, some of them you'll also maybe try and not get approval for, or you'll try and realize this isn't actually doing what what we thought it was going to do. We're going to stop doing this. Um, or it could be that you you know you just don't you know some of them just don't rise politically to the top um, and just don't get implemented in those five years. But maybe they carry over into your next plan. So just so you know, I don't want people to be overwhelmed by feeling like oh my gosh this crazy planning consultant from Roslindale is asking me to do 18 things in five years. There's no way I'm going to do it. It's more, um, we want to give you a lot of options and we want to hit all of these different categories so that the city can really, um, you know, have a lot of um, ideas to draw from. But you should know that the plan is not binding. And so all of the strategies in here are our recommendations after working, you know, closely with the city, and we we hope that you'll agree and approve those as recommendations. But there's nothing binding about this. Just because we say we think you should, you know, adopt uh, accessory dwelling unit um, ordinance, if you don't do that, 
nothing, you know, there's no ramification in that other than you won't have an ADU ordinance, but you can still get certification of the plan. You can still use the plan for safe harbor. You can still produce the units you need to. You don't need to follow the plan to the letter of the, you know, every written word. And I only say that because sometimes in communities where there's a little bit of a holdup in getting something approved, sometimes it's because um, the, you know, the political powers that be are a little nervous about approving something and feeling like, oh my gosh, now I'm committing to, you know, to all of these things and I'm not sure I can do them all, or I'm not sure I even totally agree with them all because I don't, some of it's not totally fleshed out. Some of it are like, we have an idea and we think you should study it and try to figure out if it's doable. And it could be that you study it and say, this isn't really doable. Um, but I want to kind of give you that sense that that's okay. It's okay if not everything is, you know, by approving this, you're not saying we are absolutely going to do every single one of these. Is that is that fair? And I don't want to lower the bar too much either, because I do think a lot of work's been put into this, and these are good ideas, and they really have come from the community and what we heard. But let me just pause there, and I just want to see if that's a fair way. I know, Andre, you've been on the working group, and there's city staff here. Um, if you want to either counter what I just said or or give any nuances to that, I'm I'm happy to to pause here. Uh, no, I'll give. Uh, uh, let me invite Danielle Evans though to to say something if she wants to. I didn't give uh, you the chance, Danielle, to say anything right at the beginning, so I don't know if you want to weigh in. Maybe you could just mention a little bit about the survey that that Jen referenced. How many uh, folks responded to that? Because I think that's a, a compelling number. Yeah, it was well over 800, Danielle. It was okay, a very yeah, number. Off my head. And I know that we had that translated in um, Spanish and also Haitian Creole. And we did a, a lot of outreach there. I, I don't think we got the returns, um, the responses as much as we wanted in those other languages, but we did make some efforts. Um, it was a challenging time. We embarked on this right, right before the um, pandemic hit. We had to kind of... Um, figure all figure out the whole just redesign the, the the whole um scheme originally so um and regarding the menu of choices i think as soon as this is approved i think we'll try to hit the ground running um on some of the you know the kind of like the low-hanging fruit we have we'll have um a housing intern that will be helping this summer. And I hope to, um, with, with your um, guidance, which ones we should tackle first. So we really do want to, you know, have this um, working document. We want to actually do stuff with it. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. And that was good timing because my dog started barking like crazy because the doorbell rang, but now he stopped. So hopefully we're in the clear. Okay, so the local initiatives, and I'm not going to go through everyone in detail, but I'm just going to kind of list them out for you. Local initiatives, um, reestablishing the rehab program and uh, that you used to have um, for rental properties. And really this time, though, and I don't know that other communities have done this. This was an idea that we had in working with um, community members and uh, the working group. Um, you can prioritize the funds for landlords who are either renting to rental voucher holders or as a way to encourage new landlords to rent 
to rental voucher holders. And so this is hopefully a way to provide an incentive for you know, perhaps some landlords who are, for whatever reason, probably wrong reasons or maybe naive reasons um, or maybe not naive reasons, who are reluctant to, to rent to Section 8 voucher holders or other local or other uh, rental voucher holders. And so the idea here, and we touch on this again later, but the idea here is why not use your funds, and this these would be federal funds, to prioritize uh, rental property owners who are doing what you want them to do, which is rent to households most in need and including and especially households that uh, have rental vouchers who are having trouble finding um, places to rent in Medford, either because of outright discrimination or because of ignorance or because, you know, the units don't meet uh, meet codes. And this would actually help overcome those condition obstacles by um, really focusing those federal funds on units that need improvements so that they can meet the qualifications to rent to, to local voucher holders. So that was one. And so I wanted to just go into that one a little bit more because it's it seems kind of straightforward on the surface, but the truth is we we um, it's a little it's a little creative for you. Um, it's not the way most rental uh, rental programs are are run to my knowledge. And um, this would be a way maybe to help you get over that hurdle and the, some of the fair housing issues that that we were hearing about and we think that people are experiencing in Medford. So there are some units that are counted on the subsidized housing inventory that are set to expire and would be lost. Um, we have spoken with uh, uh, some colleagues at the state and we think that there are ways, um, and Danielle, I don't even know if you may have more information on this at this point, but we spoke like a month or more ago and felt like, um, you know, it, uh, I think the three units were probably not as much at risk because they're um, run by a nonprofit and probably aren't going anywhere. But the 35 units, I think you, the city needed to look into more to see if there were, uh, you know, real efforts that need to be made to preserve those on the SHI. And I'll just keep going. If you want to interrupt Danielle with more information, feel free to do that. Um, the other idea was to do affordable infill on city-owned vacant lots. And so this was one idea that's kind of connected with a regulatory idea on one of the following slides. But essentially, the city has a number of uh, vacant units that it already owns, probably through tax foreclosure, tax title properties, or maybe other reasons, but they're scattered in those single-family neighborhoods, and they're, uh, a number of them are undersized, a um, little bit undersized from what zoning would allow. And so you just looked at an A&R today, and so you know that there are these different infill lots, and sometimes people can do an A&R because they actually meet the zoning requirements. Um but other times lots are just under the existing zoning requirements. And one thing that some communities have done that we thought might be an interesting idea is to uh, amend your zoning to allow development on those smaller lots that don't quite meet the minimum lot sizes in those single family neighborhoods, but only, and this Katie gets at your point, but only if you're creating a deed restricted affordable unit. It'd probably be a single family. It would have to follow the rest of zoning. So if it's single family zoning, it'd be a single family unit. If it's, you know, 
40% of the lot area coverage, it would be 40% of the lot area coverage. Nothing else would really change other than in certain circumstances, you may have to allow special permits to waive some of the dimensional requirements, um, depending on the configuration of the lot. That's something you could work into such a bylaw. But by doing that, only the undersized lots would, the, those undersized lots would only be developable if you're putting a deed restricted house on the lot. And who would do that? Probably not a private homeowner, probably an entity like Habitat for Humanity or uh, Medford Community Housing or some other, um, you know, local nonprofit or regional nonprofit type of um, developer. And so that was one idea. And the fact that the city already owns a bunch of these lots, um, if you combine that with the zoning amendment, um, you could issue a request for proposals uh, on a certain number, maybe all of them, maybe a few of them, maybe one at a time. There's a lot of strategy here. And essentially, they'd be by right. Jen, did we lose you? You got you muted. We lost our video, too. Whereas now they can't be the, the community development board. Um, hold on, I'm just getting some weird notification. We we just missed a lot of what you said. You kind of disappeared. Oh shoot! Okay, yeah, I just got a, a I just got a notification that my internet wasn't good. Um, so I hope you. I don't know what you missed and what you heard. Um, essentially, how, how far back should I go, Alicia? Just a couple minutes, I think. Jen. Oh man. Okay. Okay. <sighs> okay, so um, so let's see. So the affordable infill, so there's a lot of, um, there's I shouldn't say a lot, there's a number of city-owned lots that are undersized, as well as other private lots that are undersized in those single-family districts. And so the idea of number three is associated with a zoning strategy on a following slide, and the zoning strategy is to allow by right the development of these undersized lots, but only if you put a deed-restricted affordable unit and it would need to be following everything else about your zoning code. So if it if that district only allows single family, then the affordable unit would need to be single family, but it would be affordable and deed restricted. Count on your SHI and you could, you know, even say that you wanted to meet local housing needs. And so you could, you know, set the um, income requirements accordingly. Um, the other thing about this is that um, people ask me, well, you know, would a private homeowner then be able to, let's say they had a lot next to their house and it was slightly undersized from zoning, would they be able to put a house there? And the answer is technically yes, if it's deed restricted, but the truth is most private homeowners wouldn't venture into that kind of development because it's such unknown territory. You'd need to, you know, certain things that you'd need to know how to do like um, hold a lottery to, you know, find a buyer for the unit, do income verification. So the reality is that it would probably be a nonprofit um, or local developer like a Habitat for Humanity or Medford Community Housing that would develop that kind of infill project. So then they would create, you know, the affordable deed restricted house, probably single family in these in these neighborhoods. And so, Katie, I don't know if you heard me. Uh, I feel like I'm repeating myself because I am, but I don't know how much of this you already heard. Um, so this kind of gets at, Katie, your question about could you do a single family affordable home? Okay, I'm happy to go into that too again if if um, I didn't cover as much as I should have 
in that second time. Um, the other thing is the Medford Affordable Housing Authority has a number of um, its properties that are in great need of uh, rehab and maintenance and um, and even opportunities for increased density in those, um, in, even in those existing buildings or existing um, properties. And so uh, supporting that with local funds. Um, and I think there's a, a project coming up pretty soon for the salt and stall uh, building that. Um, I don't know if they're seeking local funds or not, but that's something I know the housing authority is working very hard to update those units and to um, really rehab that whole that whole development. Um, and then expanding, there's a down payment program that's not well used in Medford. And so expanding and really promoting it more so that um, it can be used more in Medford. Any questions at this point? Sorry, I'm losing my cursor and I can't forward the slide. Here you go. Okay, so under planning policies and zoning, we talked about the affordable infill in zoning bylaw. And that's, you know, all of these really, I would say, are things that the, the community development board could be very involved with and even take a leadership role on. Um, the affordable infill zoning bylaw, um, the more flexible standards for multifamily and mixed use, you... Uh, allow multifamily in certain districts, but the requirements, the height requirements, parking requirements, and other dimensional requirements make it so that there's very limited opportunity to do anything um, uh, under your zoning um, with regard to multifamily. And that's one reason potentially that the, the community is actually seeing uh, the 40B developments. And so we think that you could benefit from more flexible standards and we have some more specific ideas um, in the plan when we wrote up that strategy. And then allowing accessory dwelling units um, uh, and you know, really including the conversion of outbuildings. Um, and there's a, a bunch of different um, strategies parts of the strategy, I should say. And I don't know how familiar um, you all are with Attorney Bobrowski's recommendations that have, I think the city council's heard some of those. I'm not quite sure if this board has as well, but but he gets into ADUs and some of these other ideas that you'll see are kind of, we're reinforcing each other. Um, yeah, the, can you just yeah. explain what ADUs are for those? Yeah, I'm sorry. Know? So accessory dwelling units are essentially apartments in either single family homes or on an outbuilding in, in a single family home. And so they're usually smaller apartments. Um, oftentimes communities will put a square footage or a percentage requirement on it saying it can be no more than X percent of the 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 floor area of the of the main house. Um, sometimes communities say that um, the owner of the property shall live in at least one of the units, either the accessory unit or the main unit. And it really provides a, a way to create rental housing that is financially attainable because you're creating these smaller units. They're not necessarily affordable with deed restrictions. They won't count on your subsidized housing inventory, but they do provide a smaller housing option and they can be integrated into single family neighborhoods with very little visual presence. Um, you know, you may end up having an, maybe an extra 
car or an extra parking spot, but um, but typically they're designed so that you don't see the entrance door. Um, and they basically, you walk by, it looks like a single family house. It just so happens that there's a little unit carved out somewhere. Sometimes people call them in-law apartments, but I, I don't love that name because it implies that only your family is going to live there. And that's really not the purpose of an ADU. But ADUs really do support um, an aging population in particular, give seniors uh, a little bit extra income if they're uh, if they own a home and maybe having trouble paying their taxes or with uh, home upkeep give a little extra income sometimes it also helps with you know the accessory unit owner could even help uh, with different chores and whatnot so that the rent is reduced there's all sorts of like arrangements that can be made in that regard to support seniors or the seniors can even create an accessible accessory dwelling unit move into that unit and um, and get rent for their the rest of their house and so there's lots of information in the AARP publications um, there's a whole bunch of things on um, accessory dwelling units and how they really support a senior population. Um, and then uh, discussing further senior housing um, opportunities, we were thinking with Lawrence Memorial and um, looking at another, another ordinance that would uh, enable conversion of larger single family homes. We did a quick GIS analysis around how many larger homes and how old are they. And we think there's potentially quite an opportunity to um, have a, you know a little more um, a little more use of those larger single family homes through zoning a little more flexibility to you know this goes in line with the ADU recommendation but this is a little more than just an accessory dwelling unit you know let's say there's a larger single family home and it's you know I don't know 5,000 square feet or something like that and you know maybe you could fit three units um, without changing the exterior um, of that of that home and you could even you know have incentives to preserve you know uh the the exterior of the building if it's an older historic home um sometimes allowing a few extra units in a building enables the the property owner to really put more into preservation um and you can certainly have conditions around that um kind of requirement if you like that idea Happy to talk more about that. There's some other communities that do kind of similar things. Um, you could even give like, you, maybe you get an extra unit um, if you make one of them deed-restricted affordable, something like that. You can put lots of different customizations into these, into really any of these ideas. And then the sixth one is um, you're about to, or maybe you've already launched the comprehensive plan project. And so we, we heard and agreed that there are a number of um, areas in the community that really deserve a closer look at uh, what is the vision for the future of these areas. And, um, you know, looking at these key corridors and commercial areas and looking what are the opportunities for constructing affordable multifamily as well as mixed use housing and in ways that support your local economy in ways that um, uh, can enhance, you know, multimodal um, transportation and walkability and, but we didn't feel that the housing production plan could take the, those ideas far enough, especially because you're about to embark on a larger comprehensive plan. And we think that looking at all of these different areas where there are opportunities, um, we think, really requires a larger community vision and really trying to pin down what is the future of these different neighborhoods? What do we want development to be like here? And really tying it together with all of the other issues you look at when you do a comprehensive plan. So we fell short of 
Now, falling short is wrong because it sounds like a criticism. Or it really wasn't. It was very deliberate. We sort of said, yeah, these all need to be looked at in more detail, but we don't think this is the place to give you those specific recommendations. But when you do the comprehensive plan, we think integrating affordable and multifamily and mixed-use housing into these um, commercial areas and quarters is a really important part of the future of those neighborhoods. And then the last one, capacity, education, and coordination. These are a bunch of ideas for how to build your capacity, how to really um, implement this plan. A couple I want to draw your attention to. Um, number three, um, we think there's already movement for this, but creating a municipal affordable housing trust could be a really good way to have a place to put funds that are just set aside for housing could do things like the infill program that we talked about and other things. Um, and what it does is it segregates funding out of the, you know, your, your, your regular city budgets. And, uh, and oftentimes it uses Community Preservation Act funds, puts it in a separate fund called the trust, and then there's a board that oversees it. And the board has some level of autonomy from the, the, the politics in the community. Um, we also recommend that those types of housing trusts create an action plan that is you know, really done with a lot of community input and stakeholder input so that when funds are given to the trust, you know pretty much how they're going to be used and what the priorities will be and that they'll be really trying to implement the HPP as well as meet local needs that are identified. And then the fourth one I'll draw your attention to, number four here, is um, uh, changing the, your housing planner to full-time rather than part-time. And, um, and then the, the number six, I, I feel like I'm taking up too much of your time, so I'm skipping over some things. But number six, um, really focusing on not just doing the minimum, but really doing a much deeper um, job, I guess, and, and implementation of fair housing, education, outreach, and enforcement um, especially working with landlords um, and working with the housing authority to help with this, um, really educating on the benefits of renting to households with rental vouchers, and that in combination with the rental um, rehab idea and prioritizing those federal funds to landlords that really are cooperating and, and, and renting to households with rental vouchers, we think could help. Um, I don't know that we have the full answer on that issue, but we wanted to try to at least get it, you know, a bit more um, where we could. And then, um, yeah, there's a few other ideas in here that I'm happy to circle back to, but I, but I don't want to monopolize too much of your time. I do have more detailed slides to follow this, just in case you have detailed questions that I can dive into and show you more things. Um, but that's really kind of the the brief version, if you can believe it, of the presentation that I gave the, the city council. And I'm, I'm happy to stay as long as you'd like. I just don't want to um, be presumptuous and take up too much of your time. Thanks, Jen. I thought that was a very thorough presentation. Uh, just speaking as someone who participated in the housing plan working group meetings, I thought it was a really robust conversation, really thoughtful uh, participation, a lot of great feedback from the community. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty proud of this document. I think that if you haven't had a chance to look at it uh, and dig in, there's, it's just a wealth of information about the kinds of housing that Medford has, our demographics, how they've changed. It's all up, up to date uh, info that we can really use to uh, advise uh, you know, ourselves in terms of, as a city, in terms of our, our policy and uh, the way we approach housing projects going forward. So I just want to, you know, thank you, Jen, and, and everyone who worked on this.
Um, let me let me open it up for the uh, questions and comments from uh, from board members. And I'm going to stop sharing the screen just so I can see everyone. Oh yeah, sorry about that. The only question I have, this is Jackie, Andre. The only question I have actually is, is more for Alicia, maybe you, Andre. So the adoption of this plan um, would come after the city council, right? So is it a quasi-judicial because the city council is at, we're making recommendations to the city council or are we, will we be voting on it as well? Jen is actually better to answer this. Oh, Jen, sorry. She asked, yeah, Jen, do you want to do it? Because this is comes sure. under the-, the Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Jackie, that's a great question. Um, you actually need, the, the Community Development Board needs to approve the plan in addition. So you're not advising, you're really, it's two approvals that the state will look for. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. All right. So we could, we could vote to approve it tonight. It's just that if the city council does make any changes, it would have to come back. We'd have to review and reapprove it. We wouldn't have to have a, you know, like a public hearing or anything. I yeah. just have to. Um, so this has been in front of the city council and we've had to committee the holes with them. We've put this out to public comment. And I believe, Daniel, if I'm correct, that we haven't really gotten any public comment other than we solicited some actively at the very beginning. I Many of you know Roberta Cameron. We, we actually asked her to comment. Um, but I but I don't think we've gotten any unsolicited comments. Um, I got one from a member of the public. Okay. And we'll incorporate that stuff. I think that the city council would be more likely to approve this if this board voted first. Um, they're used to getting references and recommendations and having to refer things um, to this board. So if this board did vote, to approve it. And I'm not saying, I don't want to be putting pressure on this board to vote for tonight. I am more saying, knowing them in the political process, it's easier for them to say, I've, you know, we have, oh, they'll, we don't have to refer to them. It's been referred to them. They've approved it. Okay, now we're going to vote on it. They may say they want to hear the opinion of this board first. Um, but it, if this board felt positively about this, but wanted the city council to vote first, then I might ask if the board was willing to draft like a little memo sort of saying something so that they could feel that they've gotten that referral. Right. Well, we'll take it. Let's take the temperature of the folks in a second. But Alicia or Danielle, do you know if the city council is working on any comments? They, they are not actively working on any comments. Um, my instinct has been that I will resend them the, the document. I will let them know if there have been any changes since it was last sent to them and let them know that I want to bring it in front of them for approval. Um, as you know, like we sent, we gave them, we told them it was a draft. I'd like to then say to them, this is what I'm recommending is the final copy and that we'd like to bring it to you for approval. If anybody has comments or feedback to let us know, we go in front of them and hopefully it would go smoothly. They'd approve it. Um, it's possible that we would go in front of them for approval and all of a sudden they would provide comments and feedback, which we would then take at that point. Okay. Uh, any of the board members have some 
thoughts about the plan in general? How comfortable you do you feel with um, voting to approve tonight? Yes, David. Uh, Andre, um, I mean, I, I feel like what's in the report is very, it's aspirational. Um, and the suggestions or the ideas that are presented are not necessarily being voted on individually. It's so, I think in terms of, um, you know, whether this is a comprehensive report that's helpful and provides a lot of good ideas for others to think about, some to be implemented, some to be implemented with our own flavoring, I'm sure, some not to be implemented. It's still a report that's worthy of, I think, approval. I can't look at anything that Jen and the team have put together and say, well, that, that just doesn't, that, that, that's not Medford or that's wrong. Um, so I'm very sort of positively inclined. I read almost all of it. And um, I think it's a great resource. And I think there's a lot that's worthy of more consideration. I don't know that each and every item that was recommended I'd vote on because I don't know enough, but I think they're all really ideas that are worthy of more consideration toward a goal which has been well-defined as, as a good one for the city. Thank you. And Jackie, I didn't, uh, whoop, go ahead, Deanna. I was just going to say, I agree with David. I had one question I was wondering, is this the first time that Medford has had a plan, a housing production plan? We believe so. <laughs> Nobody has been able to show us an existing one. I, I always hesitate before about saying never, right? <laughs> Not in recent memory. Um, Jackie, I, yeah, Jackie, I was just going to say, I didn't, I neglected to introduce you as uh, vice chair of, of the, the board at the beginning, but wanted to give you the opportunity to, to, to comment if you, if you wanted to. Thank you, Andre. I, I think um, after listening to David, I think I've, I've formulated my opinions in a way where I don't want to be just so quick to push something, especially with the um, imminent comprehensive plan coming along, but it is definitely, it's one of those things where I have not read it all the way through, but I read enough to know that it can be retrofitted to Medford with a lot of input, a lot of um, more, you know, participation from the city and just as we go along. And it's a great place instead of a house and moratorium that's going to wait for the comprehensive plan. It's, it's better to get to safe harbor, fastest way to get to safe harbor. And I just wanted to make sure that I'm not given a vote to force anything, but I think David explained it properly is that everything is not for Medford, but it's there's definitely a lot of rich information in there in which we can start with. And it's the perfect setup to lead us to the comprehensive plan. So I would be willing to vote on it. Thank you, Jackie. Katie, I see you're unmuted. Did you wanna say anything? Yeah, I, I echo um, all my fellow board members comments. I think David did say it best. I, I would say my, Jen, you said, sir, what's your, kind of overall take on the plan. I think my overall um, take on it is that it feels really inclusive to the different types of housing we need in the city, right? <laughs> so when we talk about needing housing and needing housing that's affordable, it's for families, it's for single people, it's for seniors on fixed income, right? Like there's just a whole spectrum. And that was part of my question about what type of housing are we building? I think um, to be a really part of being an inclusive city 
is is being inclusive to the different kinds of needs when we talk about housing. There's a lot of pieces to it. Housing is a really big piece of it. So that was one of my takeaways from the report that I think is really important. And I would agree that, you know, tonight's vote's not a vote on any individual recommendation as well as it is, as David said, the aspirational nature of it, which I'm, I'm all there for. Thank you, Katie. Andre, if any? I can, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's Jackie. I just wanted to just really quickly and, and say that what I saw in this report is it's so house and choice, house and for all. And I think that's the most exciting part about it. And with the comprehensive plan and the community doing a vision plan, I think it just pairs well. I just wanted to come back to that, that state initiative for house and choice. And, and that's what I see. All right. Thank you, Jackie. Um, Class, do you uh, do you want to say anything? I think I'm generally in agreement with everything I've heard here. I think I was. I mean, maybe the one question I have left for Jen is: Are there any pieces of this report that are sort of like? pieces that are sort of the loosest fit or the things that you're not like, you're looking for more, for more input from, you know, whatever stakeholder in Medford. Um, are there certain pieces that you're, you're looking for more ideas on, or are you feeling generally um, that the report is steady in, in all the sort of pieces that are outlined? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I and my view is that it's been pretty thoughtfully and thoroughly vetted um, through the process. It's been, you know, we've been working on it since before COVID started. And so, um, you know, we got a little bit held up with the pandemic and got a little slightly off track on the schedule, but, um, and then picked back up pretty soon after that. And I feel like it's been you know, by the time we actually wrote the plan, the ideas had been bouncing around um, so that none of the ideas were really brand, brand new when we wrote it. And then since we wrote it, I think we issued it in like um, November or December, or we had versions kind of circulating. Um, and then the draft was officially, I think, released in early f in February sometime after the city council met. Um so I feel like it is steady. I don't think there's anything in particular um, that I think, you know, as David said, there's a lot of things to consider and there are a lot of things to sort of think, is this a good fit for Medford and how could we craft this? There's a lot of ways you could customize the ideas. Um, but I don't think that there's any like real loose areas that haven't been, you know, well considered for the type of plan that it is. I guess you sort of answered my second question, which was, are there any specific parts of it that were sort of tailor-made to, to Medford? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing is, to be honest, we we take a, a lot of pride in um, tailor-making all of the plans so that, um, you know, we try to use the words people tell us at, you know, when we're taking notes at focus groups and at uh, looking at the survey, we kind of pull out phrases that people in the community have used and 
try to really tailor and we don't even pull the same data all the time. We have kind of a base set of data that we look at, but then we pull other data to sort of like, oh, well, that's an interesting thing I'm seeing about this community. I want to find out more about that. So, you know, you'll look through the plan and you won't see even the same data sets necessarily. Um, um, you know, I would say it's, it's highly customized in that way. I, I think for me, I was originally maybe leaning towards the memo, but I, I'm certainly on board for the, for the vote. Thanks, Thanks Klaus. Um, we do have a member of the public who joined us. So I, although we don't have a formal public uh, comment uh, period, I'm gonna, I'll invite uh, MJ to, uh, to, to say a few words. We just got to unmute you. Let's see. I think you're good. Yeah. Okay. I am apologize. Like you know, many people are bouncing around various Zoom meetings, so I. Sure. I no, no. See. Sorry. Sorry. Actually, MJ, let me just start you off. Can you just say your your name and address for the record? Sure. Yeah. My name is Matthew Page Lieberman. I live on 15 Canal Street here in Medford. Um, I so I I yeah. I just want to say I, I didn't catch all of this meeting, um, but the the part that I kind of did uh, when I joined. It, it sounded to me, and I'm not quite sure that, that that Jennifer Goldson had said that there were some parts of the plan she felt could be a little bit more ambitious. And I'm, I'm trying to understand if, if I misheard that, or um, if um, at the same time, kind of how the plan was developed. If there's like a, I know that there's a somewhat collection of you know community input, um, and also trying to tailor things specifically for the city. Um, but I guess there's another question about additional, uh, you know, possibilities. There, there are some ideas, I, I think, that uh, Ms. Goldson said about things like uh, perhaps community land trust. I'm not sure. I didn't. But, you know, I, there are some ideas that are kind of uh, with some that are spoken in the community, but I don't know if they've kind of reached that kind of mature stage in which they've been uh, incorporated to the plan. So I'm sorry if I misunderstood anything. No, I think... Uh... I, th I think you're right. We there was a couple things that just got skipped over in the slides for for time's sake, but that was one of the um, the land trust community land trust was one of the recommendations that's in there. Um, and I, I'll just say, as a member of the the working group on this plan, that I, I can kind of verify what Jen was saying about how it was really a starting from zero type of uh, type of process. I think all of the strategies that are there. Are really came from Medford, uh, you know, even if we had some, I think Jen threw some, uh, you know, possibilities at us, but we really workshopped it hard. I think there was even a lot, probably a lot more on there, but we, we, after a lot of conversation and haggling, we kind of narrowed it down to a smaller group in these three buckets because we didn't want it to be overwhelming so that people wouldn't look at it. We wanted to have, you know, some you know, there's a five-year plan. So let's at least have, you know, one or one thing in each bucket we could do a year, basically, you know, so that I think was, was the idea. Um, and I don't know if, you know, Danielle or, or, or Jen, you want to talk about the implementation side of things anymore? You know, I mean, I think you covered it. I, MJ, I appreciate your, your question. I mean, some of the things that I think I forget exactly how you phrased it, but the answer that was developing my in my head was to to talk about the things that I think need further consideration. 
um, that aren't as as fleshed out, maybe. Um, and so some of the some of the things are like the re rezoning um, for the various quarters and areas. So Mystic Ave, Wellington Station area, Boston Ave, Fall Square, Medford Square, and West Medford Square. We kind of um, kind of, uh, I want to say we kicked the can a little bit, but it's, but I think it was for a good reason because of the community visioning. And, you know, Jackie had said, that's good that, you know, we incorporate these things into the comprehensive plan. So even though those ideas aren't totally fleshed out, I think it's appropriate that they're not fleshed out. And then the other area that I, that comes to mind more quickly, well, two areas is the idea of the infill zoning is not totally fleshed out. Like, you know, all the details of that. I think it needs some study and some consideration. And there's lots of different ways you could approach that. I think it's a kind of a kernel of an idea that could really help you create more single family affordable units in other areas of the community that maybe don't have a lot of affordable units, but all the details are not fleshed out in this because we didn't have really enough to go on to, to give you like something all wrapped up with a bow, but it's really just like, this is an idea we think you should explore. Um, and then, you know, Danielle had mentioned there's some interns going to work on this over the summer. And we think that kind of project is a great one. You know, we gave some ideas around how to explore that. And then the other one, I would say that we, we kind of threw out as a, a little bit of a, a, a kernel of an idea, but not fleshed out is the idea of senior housing and working with the, um, the hospital and just trying to figure out if there are some ways to partner, um, maybe using their some of their land, maybe not, I don't know. But that's just sort of an idea to look more into, but it wasn't, um, you know, t totally, we didn't put any meat on it. So hopefully MJ is that kind of getting at what your questions were. Okay, good. Thank you, MJ. Um, and Danielle, did you, from your, your perch as uh, the city's housing planner, uh, do you want to say anything about the implementation side of things? I know one of the things we'd love to have is to have you on full time, which is one of the recommendations, but uh, beyond I'd that. Have, I'd have more time to do this. Um, I think one of the, the first things that we're thinking of looking into is you know, how to bring the housing rehab program back. Um, that seemed like a good kind of standalone um, task. That's something that we could look at bringing back. Um, not the way that it used to be. Apparently there was a ton of staff. So it's something we'd want to outsource. So um, something like that could, could be something that um, could be a good summer project. Um, I don't know if there's anything else on the list. Um, you know, we're open to suggestions for you know what we should tackle first, um. it it might be worth noting that if members of the community development board aren't already aware, the item around ADUs is of particular interest to the city council. And while their current project is uh, presented as recodification, they are they have reviewed language for adding ADUs as an option to our zoning and it's anticipated that that will be in a final draft that will get referred back to this board. Um, so that's an area that we've been starting, as some of you may know, to look at more closely um, as something that may occur sooner than later. Yeah, thanks. All right, well, um, 
If there are no other comments, would uh, anybody like to offer a, a motion on the plan to approve or to uh, wait for the city council? Before we vote, uh, um, I wanted to make sure I, I got what Alicia said clear about the city council and the and the with the ADUs. Um, is it that they're waiting for more information from us, or what were they exactly waiting? Um, so the process, I was, I'll give. Might as well just put it out there now. The council has received another draft of their revised zoning. I don't know if Annie sent it to you all yet, um, but we can share it. Um, I think we've shared it before. There are other meetings before, and they're having a meeting this Thursday. They've actually um, tentatively scheduled another meeting for two weeks after that to review the zoning. Um, I've been talking to the city council president about what the next steps will be, whether they'll then hold public meetings like advertised for it, or whether they'll refer it to this board for a public hearing. Um, one or the other of those is likely to start happening in June, either get a referral to hear from them or uh, that they'll advertise public meetings. Um, so that's, and the ADUs will be in that package. I am not expecting it to be a separate thing that would come from the, from the city council. Okay. I was going to ask that next. Thank you. Yeah. All right, thank you. Is there a motion on the floor? Andre, this is Jackie and I, um, a motion to approve the HPP plan as is prior to pre uh, city council. All right, thank you. Uh, is there a second for that motion to approve the, the housing production plan? Andre, this is David, I'd second that. Thank you, David. Uh, any, Questions or comments before we move to a roll call? All right, uh, Deanna Peabody. Aye. David Blumberg. Aye. Jackie Furtado. Aye. Katie McHugh. Aye. Klaus Andresen. Aye. And I'm an aye as well. The uh, Medford Community Development Board unanimously approves the housing production plan. I should say the draft housing production plan. Thank you so much, Jen and Danielle and everybody at Community Development for all your work on this. It's really a big step forward for us. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was so exciting to see that agent in place piece. You even down to the transportation infrastructure. And in the meantime, with the ADUs, because obviously it's going to be long. It was just exciting. I just wanted to say that. So. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> Without going on and on. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. All right. Take thank care. you. Have a good evening. So last item on our agenda is just miscellaneous. And I think that Annie may have a, a quick announcement or two. Yep, I just need some signatures from all of you guys. So um, I'm in the office all day tomorrow and Wednesday. If um, you guys might be able to stop by at any time, um, I can be there by eight o'clock both mornings if um, that would be easier with facilitating before you start work. So 8 a.m. to 4.30 tomorrow and 8 a.m. to 7.30 on Wednesday. And I'll send an email with those times. Um, but if you guys could all just plan to stop by at some point 
uh, on one of those days, that would be great. And then we'll just get, I have a bunch of big Mylar plans and then some past minutes for you to sign. Do you want us to coordinate ahead of time with you, Annie? What time we're going to come or just stop by? I think you can just stop by. Um, if you also include my cell phone in the email, if you want to text me, um, but I, I'll be there the whole time. Um, so, okay. and the, they'll, if I'm on a call or something, all the materials will just be out on the front table in the office um, on room 308 on the third floor. So you can just sign them um, and everyone in the, the office will know how to direct you where to go. So. Great. Anything else, Annie? Um, and then the one other thing I was going to mention is we're doing our comp plan kickoff meeting on June 9th. So if you guys are interested in attending, please save the date, um, but we'll be sharing more information about that. Um, very do soon. We, thank you. And do we have a date for our next meeting? We um, do not. It's funny because I am trying to do the second Wednesday, um, but I think June 9th is the second Wednesday of June. <laughs> so um, we can't do it that day. Um, but maybe if we just we have a steering committee meeting the following Wednesday 16th. So um, are you guys available if we were to do a Thursday that week, maybe the 10th? Or the following week is the 17th that I think might be Bunker Hill day, though. In which case we can't have a city meeting, I don't think. Um, I could do the 10th, Annie. The 10th? Would that work for others? And I apologize, then we'll start doing the second Wednesday. <laughs> I can do the 10th. Okay. okay, perfect. What day was that again? It's a Thursday. Thursday the 10th, the second Thursday of June. And do we have uh, items for the agenda that we're already teeing up? I do not have any filings at this moment. We do anticipate quite a uh, few development filings in the near-ish future, um, but I do not have any yet, or I don't know if they would be on a June agenda or a July one, so. Okay. Nothing has been submitted to our office. I'm good with it. And anything we get needs 35 days for review by city departments. So, I mean, it's not like something would be last minute um, coming to you guys. I think unless we receive something shortly, it'll be on a July agenda. Okay. What, what was that, Chris? Okay. Uh, great. Thank you, everyone. Uh, is there a motion to adjourn? Andre, I just oh. wanted, to, I have one I should last have asked if anybody had else had uh, announcements. Go ahead, Jackie. The only announcement I have is I don't want to put her on the spot, but I wanted to say congratulations to Allie Heppel because I'm a tough UEP alum and I saw that she just graduated last week. So I wanted to say congratulations. Thank <laughs> you so much, Jackie. Allie. <laughs> Still wrapping up projects, but yes. almost there. I, I, <laughs> thank you. Yes. That's great. <laughs> thank you, Jackie. <laughs> Any other quick announcements before a motion? Is there a motion to adjourn? I'll do the motion to adjourn. This is Jackie Furtado, motion to adjourn. <laughs> Thank you. Is there a second? Katie, Katie? McHugh, I'll second. Thanks, Katie. 
All right, roll call vote. Deanna Peabody? Aye. David Plumberg? Aye. Uh, Jackie Furtado? Aye. Katie McHugh? Aye. Klaus Andreessen? You're muted, Klaus. Aye. All right, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an I as well. All right, thank you, everybody. Meeting is adjourned. And thanks, Good night, everybody. Everyone.